rejected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us, let us find our rest in thee. Strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing. You know, the name Jesus literally means the Lord saves. So I'd ask you to keep this in mind as we sing our, our last song before Steve comes and as, as we read these scripture passages. In Matthew chapter 1, we read about the angel's message to Joseph. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Being with us, excited to have you with us. If you're joining for the, joining us for the first time online, we're grateful for your presence. Hopefully, you can check us out more fully on online and continue to worship with us. We're grateful for that. A couple of announcements. First of all, immediately after the service here, those who are involved in the Christmas program, which is going to be next week, take place next week during our morning worship service. Uh, you're invited to stick around, uh, and there's going to be a rehearsal afterwards for that uh, Christmas program, so you'll get further instructions. Just meet in the fellowship hall 
after the service as soon as you can, and then we'll go from there. You'll get instructions uh, as far as that goes. We're also planning a Christmas Eve service. That Christmas Eve service will be at 5.30, a candlelight service at 5.30 here on Christmas Eve, and it'll be a short service so you can go home and spend time with your family. We look forward to that time as well. There are a lot of other announcements. There's some updates on the nursery. We're in need of some nursery workers or volunteers. We're planning on going to a f- staffing our nursery if we can after the first of the year so that parents can leave their, actually leave their children in the nursery if they'd like to. If you have any other questions or things you need to find out about, you can talk to me after the service if you're here in person or you can get a hold of us online and talk to Megan at uh, megan at creeksidedm.com. Thanks for all that you're doing. We're appreciative of everything. I'd like to continue to worship Uh, as we pray and then as we study the word. So let's pray. Father, uh, what a a beautiful song that we've just sung about the powerful name of Jesus. And as we uh, enter and are in this Advent season, as we take a little break from our study in the book of Matthew for the next couple, two or three weeks, we just pray that you would uh, guide our thoughts and uh, guide our actions. Lord, We live in a tumultuous age, we live in a a divided country, we live in uh, troubling times, and I pray that you'd help us uh, to keep our eyes fixed on on Jesus and uh, keep proclaiming the truth of the Word of God. Open our eyes, as the psalmist prayed, dear Father, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law. Teach us what you want to teach us, help us to apply it to our lives, to change us into the people you want us to be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol was first published in 1843. It's a familiar story about uh, cold-hearted Ebenezer Scrooge who uh, is transformed uh, from this self-absorbed and uh, cantankerous old man into a generous and gracious person through his encounter, uh, and he becomes a, a, benefa- a generous benefactor uh, because of his encounter with, uh, with this ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. And what happens is that when people see the story or read the story or see the movie, then it tends to move people to become less selfish. It tends to move people to become more generous. It tends to make people a little bit more accepting of, of Christmas and a little bit more joyful at Christmas. Uh, all good things. Not, not bad. Not bad at all. But as nostalgic as Dickens' tale is, I'd like to suggest that it's not the real Christmas story. You see, Scrooge had a transformation. Uh, Dickens portrays Scrooge's transformation, which came about as a result of his encountering a ghost. Well, when we turn to the scriptures, and particularly today as we look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, we're going to see that God brings about transformation when we encounter him. Dickens encountered a ghost, brought about transformation. When we encounter God, it brings about a real transformation. Dickens' transformation, albeit nice and wonderful, was not really helpful in him 
earning his favor with God or getting closer, closer to God by any way. His good deeds, they were admirable, but they didn't help him with his standing before God. And Paul tells us in Galatians that none of us is justified by works. Uh, apart from faith. In Galatians chapter 2, uh, verse 16, Paul says, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 3, Paul commends to us salvation by grace through faith, not by the works of the law. He says it's not going to happen that way. He says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. So, Scrooge's belief in a ghost that transformed his behavior, and it resulted in people were brought into his favor. You know, it changed his behavior, people were brought into his favor. Well, our belief in Christ transforms us and brings us into God's family. There's a big difference. Not just into the favor of Scrooge, but into the family of God. We're brought into the family of God. So the real Christmas story is one of transformation real transformation from slavery to sonship, from slavery into the family of God. And so if you have your Bibles uh, or your device or whatever you want to use, I'd invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to read the text, verses 1 through 7. And this transformation from slavery to sonship, from being alienated to become one of God's family, is bound up in the birth of Jesus. It's all wrapped up in the birth of Jesus. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, we're going to look at these two refrains in the real Christmas story. Okay, the real Christmas carol. It's not, not, not Dickens' a Christmas carol, it's the real Christmas carol. That reveal God's activity in the incarnation that results and provides the opportunity for us to be, escape slavery to sin and to enter into God's family. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I'll begin with verse 1. Now, I say, this is Paul speaking, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, Born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The text breaks down into a couple of sections, at least in my estimation, and the first refrain that we see in the Christmas carol, the real Christmas carol, is that our, uh, about our rights as physical sons and daughters, okay, so please, I'm children of God, okay, but, but this rights of sons is, is particularly in the DNA of the Scripture, okay? It's, it's unique and, and centered in who we are as God's people. Okay, so a son, the text basically in verses 1 and 2, is saying if you're a son of minority age, you're, you're, you're the heir, okay? But you're just like a slave in the sense that you're going to be under the guardians and masters and teachers and rules and regulations of the household until you reach the age set by your father in which you receive the full privileges of your sonship. That's just the way it works in the world, okay? 
in traveling overseas, there, there's this young uh, college-age gal now. She's a college-age gal. And I, I've seen her on many occasions uh, speak to her father. And, she's, you know, and she, 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 she they knows that she receives her full rights as a, an adult in that culture at the age of 18. If you're a Jewish child, you receive the full rights of sonship at the age of 12, right? You go through the bar mitzvah, and then you receive, you're considered an adult. So at different cultures and different places, there's a different age. And he's just saying, once, until you reach that age, you're just like a slave. You're raised and you're told what to do by somebody else. Isn't it interesting? Even you're the heir, you're told to do what you're told to do by slaves. In those households, okay, not now, but in that day and age. And so, basically, what we see here is that there's an illustration that starts the passage. And the illustration, then, is unpacked in an explanation that applies to believers. This idea of slavery versus sonship. Now, it's all teased out for us when we see our reception as spiritual sons. The bulk of the text deals with our reception as spiritual sons, but it's set up by this illustration. Now, we have the the application or the explanation of it. Verse 3 says, so also we. Okay, that's the connection. So also, who's we? We has to do with the believers, sons of God through faith in Christ. Uh, in the same way that a minor son or a slave was kept in guardian under guardians and rules and regulations and rituals of the household until the time set by the father, so were we, were we, as children of God, under slavery to the, what's the text say? Elementary things. Elemental things or the elementary things. It says in the NASB, held under the elemental things of the world. What does that mean? The elemental things of the world. It refers to the teachings of religious teachings, okay? Religious teachings of the Jewish people. Religious teachings of the Gentile people. These are rituals, rules, and regulations and requirements that focus on what we must do in order to gain favor with a certain deity, all right? Now, the New Testament, uh, they had these rabbinic traditions that they held up, actually elevated them above the Scripture, In the Gentiles, they had their own pagan philosophies and religions in which they had to follow certain rules and regulations if you wanted to gain the favor of the deity who was in charge. So he's saying that until a person comes to faith in Christ, we were held under captive to these rules and regulations. We were trying to measure up and earn our way to God. Basically, work salvation, legalism, trying to gain. In in both cases, obedience to the rules... The rituals and the regulations were necessary if you were to gain right standing before God. What's that look like today? Well, some of us grew up. Now, so those who grew up in the church, it would be like we had these rules, okay? You had to go to church so many times a week. Every time the dirt, church doors were open, right? You had to wear a certain kind of clothes. Uh, in certain churches, you have to be, go through confirmation or catechism or you know, in the brethren tradition, you know, you had to take communion every Sunday, you know, or somehow you would all fall out of favor with God. Now, maybe they did teach that, maybe they didn't teach that, but some of you felt that that was what was being taught. We have to give a certain amount to the church, or we have to give regularly, we have to serve in a certain capacity. We have to make sure that we're baptized. 
if we're to be in right favor with God. We, these are things that we're taught. Now, more modern day is, well, you have to be involved in social justice activities. You know, if you're not caring for the poor and you're not giving to the needy and you're not doing these things, then you fall out of favor with God. And again, I'm not saying any of those things are bad things, okay? I'm not criticizing those things. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying that they can become these rituals, rules, and regulations whereby we feel like we have to carry them out in order to gain favor with God, that that's our path into a relationship with God. And for some people, you know, on the other side of it, it can be involvement in occult activities or cult activities, pagan activities, pagan worship type stuff in order to gain favor with whatever the deity is. You see, we're just like Scrooge oftentimes. We're, we're trying to do what we must do in order to avoid what happened to his business partner, you know, who appeared to him in, in the dream, Jacob Marley, God, who walked around all over the place and he was tormented by all the things he didn't do. No, we don't want to have that. So we work ourselves to death. The text actually in Galatians actually kind of explains to us what this element, these elemental things are. If you look at in Galatians chapter 4 verses 9 and 10. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how is it that you would turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again to observe, notice what he says, days and months and seasons and years. There it is. Legalism. We have to do certain things on a certain time at a certain place. You see, Satan wants us there. He wants you there. He wants all of us to live in this idea that religion is what's important and we must go through the rituals and the regulations and the rules and requirements. And it's not about, that's the Satan saying, it's not about repenting of our sin and trusting in Christ as our Savior and surrendering our life to God, which is actually what it's about. Is what Paul says. He says they want, you want to go back. He's saying to the Galatian people, you've come to faith in Christ. Why are you going back to all this ritual stuff? This is not where you're saved. You're not, you weren't brought into a relationship with God through the Spirit. You were, brought, or you were brought into a relationship with God through the Spirit. That's how you continue. Not in the flesh. Not in the flesh. I was thinking about John, oh no, Charles Wesley. Not John Wesley. Charles Wesley. Now, Charles Wesley was an honor student. Okay? from Oxford. He was ordained in the Church of England. His life was marked by good works and integrity. Charles Wesley visited the inmates in prison. He helped provide food and clothing for the, the poor and the needy and the orphan. He was a diligent Bible student. He prayed regularly. He fasted. He went on a mission trip. Yeah, he came to America and served in the American Indians, the Native American Indians. Okay? He gave generously. He lived a model Christian life. And guess what? In his time in America, he wrote this. I who went to America to convert others was never myself converted to God. I had even the faith of a servant, but not a son. See, Wesley, Wesley was very religious, but he was not right with God. He was still enslaved. To the elemental things, he wasn't saved. It wasn't until later, and he tells about the story um, at Aldergate, Aldergate, Aldersgate Street. He said this, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, 
even mine, saved me from the law of sin and death. You see, he'd done all the right things. But he had never surrendered his life to Christ. And so just as the son, or just as the father in verse 2, determined the physical age in which the son would gain the full rights as an heir, our heavenly father determined. When in the history of the world, of mankind, in his redemptive plan, that we would have access to the full privileges of divine sonship and to be his children. And there are two actions that God has taken to assure our entrance into and our enjoyment of this sonship. First of all, God sent forth his son so we could enter into this sonship. That's verse 4 and 5. In verse 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. So it's God's acting. So when the fullness of time came, that God sent forth his son indicates that the birth of Jesus was the date set by the father, if you're drawing the parallel with verses 1 and 2. The date set by the father, which provides the guarantee that believers of every age would be joint heirs with the son, with the son Jesus. The fullness of time. What's that? The right time. It's the right time. It was the right time in the period of history. Now, uh, commentators go on and on and on about, you know, the, the period of Roman history and then the, the Pax Romana and the peace in Rome and the protection of the Roman soldiers and the, the system of roads that enabled the spread of the gospel and the common languages. And those are all things about the right time. But I think the right time has a lot to do with the fact that God had made it very abundantly clear that the law was not able to save us. That the Jewish people had come to the realization that the law was helpless as far as earning them favor with God and had exposed their sinfulness. And that's what Paul says in Galatians. He says the law was a tutor. It was to teach us of our wickedness, but it was also a tutor to show us our hopelessness. That apart from something besides the law, we could never enter into a right relationship with God. And so the, the, he revealed our sinfulness. God took the next step in his redemptive plan in that little stable in Bethlehem. And God sent forth his son to provide us with the righteousness for man that man could not achieve on his own. The son was sent forth. He sent forth his son. And since the Father and the Son are equal, it wasn't until the incarnation, it wasn't until the Word became flesh that the Son actually took on the title of Son, that the Son took on the role of the Son and the position of the Son. And it wasn't until then he took on the function. And his arrival, his arrival had been promised. He was the seed of, of Abraham. <laughs> the seed of Abraham. And it was through this seed that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In the plan of God, in the redemptive plan of God, way back in Genesis chapter 12 and in Genesis chapter 22, now it's coming to fruition that the Abraham's seed would come on the scene and make possible the redemption from people from all tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. And the divine son says here, in verse 4, but God's, in the fullness of time, God sent forth whose son? His son. He's a divine son. But he's also a human son, born of a woman, fully God, fully divine. Absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. Otherwise, he could not be the Savior of the world. We're just reminded, what does Jesus' name mean? Jehovah saves, God's Savior. 
He couldn't be the Savior unless he was fully God and fully man. John MacArthur put it this way about Jesus. He had to be God to have the power of the Savior. He had to be a man to have the, be the position of our substitute. God to be our Savior Man to be our substitute. He had to be fully God in order to be perfect and sinless. He had to be fully man in order to be our substitute on the cross. And so, like every human being before, he was born under the law. He had to keep it and fulfill it. And guess what? He's the only one who ever did. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. And Jesus' entrance into humanity was for a grand purpose. Look with me at the text. Verse 5. See the words there? New American Standard translated, in order that. That's the purpose. The grand purpose for the coming of Jesus and it also reveals the result. If you keep reading in verse 5, in order that he might redeem those who are under the law, in order that we might, or two purposes, if you will. The first purpose is to redeem. The second purpose is to receive. We're going to look at them individually. Christ came, first of all, to redeem us from slavery. Purpose, result, purpose, or purpose. You can parse them however you want, but they effectively mean the same thing. Sorry. So, first of all, we see that he, to redeem those who were under the law, he was perfectly obedient. And his perfect obedience enabled him to provide redemption under the law to those. To, he, he came to provide redemption to those of us who were under the law but aren't obedient. So he was obedient, so he could provide redemption to those of us who aren't obedient if we would put our faith or our trust in him. What does it mean to redeem? I've used this illustration. Do you collect cans? We used to a lot more now, and now everybody just throws them in the recycle bin probably but because there's not as many places. They used to actually have places set up where you could go and take your cans called redemption centers. That's the price of release, and in the historical context, it's the price to release from slavery. They'd go to a slave auction, and you'd bid on the slaves. And when you paid the price, it was you redeemed the slave. You could free the slave, or you could employ the slave. But you paid the price to redeem them. In Nazi Germany, there was a businessman named Oskar Schindler. And Oskar Schindler was horrified by what was happening to the, the Jewish people. That they were being marched off to the gulags and to the extermination centers. And so what he began to do was he would he had an in with the, the Nazis and he would pay price. He would purchase these Jewish people. And then he would employ them in his factories. And he, would, he sacrificed very much of his own wealth, own income, in order to purchase them, to, to buy them. And every one of them that he purchased was saved from a gas chamber or a firing squad. He redeemed them. When Christ came to this earth, the, the, the cross is what's in view when you look at the cradle. <laughs> Paul was just stating that, you know, he had just stated in Galatians 3, you can't keep the law. And those of you who live under the law, because you can't keep the law, are subject to the punishment of the law. So marvelously, God sent his own son who took the punishment of the law, the curse of the law, upon himself. If you have your Bibles open or you want to turn to there, look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. 
He took upon himself that which we deserve to pay. We can't be justified before God through keeping the law. That's what it says in Galatians 3, verses 10 and 11. If, if you look at uh, verses, verse 11, verse, chapter 3, he says, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. We are made alive by faith, not by the law. But Christ died in our place. He took upon himself the curse that we deserve to pay. Okay? To deliver us from the slavery to these elemental things. We can't keep the law. We can't keep doing this. We can't earn our way to God. And we could gain right standing with him. We gain entrance into the family through redemption. How do I become a son of God, a daughter of God? Through redemption. Faith or trust in what Christ did on the cross as a payment for our sins. I ask you. Are you redeemed? Are you right now trusting in Christ's death and that alone is the payment you deserve? That his death on the cross, he took the curse that you deserve so that all who would believe his death was a substitute for them would be forgiven and have the promise of eternal life because we can't keep the law on our own. If you are, praise God. Then he's talking to you. We were slaves. You're not anymore. You're not a slave anymore. But if you aren't, you're a slave. I invite you to trust Christ to be removed from that slavery. You see, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. It's through His blood shed on our behalf. So, Christ came, first of all, for this purpose of redeeming us for slavery. The result of that, or the second purpose, if you will, is that Christ came to receive us as sons. Our redemption is results in our sonship. That's what it says in the text. I'm just, I'm, I just want you to follow me. Verse 5, that we might receive the adoption of sons. See, there's redemption that leads to re receiving as adoption. We are included in the family of God. There is inclusion in the family of God through faith in Christ. Then there is adoption and receiving the full responsibility and roles and privileges of sonship. Through what Christ has done. Adoption is the act of giving. What's adoption? It's an act of giving the full membership into the family to someone who's not a natural born child. That's what adoption is. You give full rights of membership in the family to somebody who's not a natural child in that family. We have uh, friends that have five adopted children. And each one of those adopted children has full rights as a member of that family, along with their three biological children. It's amazing. But humans aren't, by nature, in God's family. Right? So we must be adopted into the family, if we're going to be part of the family. So when we are, we, we are by nature, we gain our position and privileges as sonship when we're adopted into the family. And the incarnation of Christ made possible our redemption, right, that's what he just said, our inclusion in the family, and our adoption, the privileges and the position as God's adult children. Notice the analogy there in verses 1 and 2. You're a child, but you don't get the full privileges until the date set by the father. Well, we're slaves under the elementary things until Christ sent Jesus who came and lived and died on the cross 
And when he died on the cross, then it made possible our redemption and made possible our adoption. And our, not only our adoption, but the adoption of every person who's a child of God from any time period through what Christ did on the cross. You have this little graphic in your bulletin. Okay, I'll hold it up to the TV uh, people, YouTube people. Okay, it has the manger scene, right? And the reflection of the manger scene is the cross. Because this is exactly what God was doing in the fullness of time. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those of us who were under the law in order that we might receive the adoption as sons. The manger led to the cross. And through the cross, because of the manger, we can receive our redemption, right relationship with God, and our inclusion into God's family. Christ came so that we could enter the family. So the first thing that we looked at is that God sent forth His Son so we could enter into sonship, right? Now we see that God sent forth His Spirit so we could experience fully that sonship. That's what we see for us in verse 6. And because you are sons... God sent forth the Spirit of His Son. Who receives the Spirit? The sons. Because you are sons. Not, 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 it's because you are sons, He has sent forth His Spirit. That's what He promised, Jesus promised in John chapter 14. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father, what? Get this? Will send. What does it say in Galatians? Chapter 4, verse 6. And because you are sons of God, God... Because you are sons, God sent forth His Spirit. The Spirit sent in my name, and He will teach you all things and remind you all things that I said to you. See, God's children, we have the Spirit of God living within us. We have the Spirit of God living within us. Because you are children of God. And enables us to experience sonship. Not just enter into sonship, but experience that sonship. I want you to look at Romans chapter 8. I think we're going to put these up on the screen for you. 9 and 11. However, you are not in the flesh. He's speaking to believers, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to him. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead also will give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. Fa the, the, the Father has sent the Spirit to dwell within us so that we could experience fully what it means to be his children. And I draw that, if you look with me at the text, it says, there, he says, the spirit of his father into us, saying, Abba, Father, our heart, saying, Abba, Father. You see, as believers, what? We experience hardship. We experience heartaches. We experience headaches. Not physical headaches, just headaches of life, okay? Struggles. And that can cause us to, to doubt or to question the objective truth that we are the children of God. I don't know about you, but it's like, whoa, you look around what's been happening in the world, especially in 2020. It's like, we, we started at the end of 2019. It was like, we're looking forward to 2020 with 2020 vision. You know, we're going to have a clearer insight on what's going on in the world. And then all chaos just broke loose. And like, nobody knew what was coming in 2020. You know, except for God. God knew. He's not taken back by it. So we have these headaches, we have these heartaches, we have these hardships in life, and it causes us to wonder, I don't even know if I am a Christian anymore. I mean, life is just so hard and so difficult, and I wonder about that. And we have this 
this objective truth that tells us that, now we have the subjective witness of the Spirit that confirms that we truly are the children of God. Spirit within us. The indwelling Spirit enables us to join with Him, with the Spirit. Now notice the text. I'm going to read the text. It says, He has sent forth His Spirit in, of His Son into our hearts. Crying. The Spirit's coming into our hearts and He's crying, Abba, Father. And that Spirit is dwelling within us so that we can say with the same confidence and the same passion and the same tenderness that the Spirit says, we can say the same thing. Abba, Father, our Father. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 16. Romans 8, 14 through 16. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery. I like the parallel there with the text that we're looking at. Not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption. (laughs) Same language, same author, different book. The spirit of adoption uh, as sons by which we what? We cry, Abba, Father. You know what the word Abba means? It means Daddy, uh, Papa. Uh, Young girl in Hungary, she's college age now. I remember I, I've seen her on many occasions referring to her daddy. She says, and this is a Hungarian, she goes, Appa, Appa, you know, daddy, daddy. I'm thinking about this text and think, the Spirit of God dwells within us. The same Spirit who comes into our, our hearts crying, Abba, Father, He's crying, Abba, Father, is the Spirit who gives us the same confidence, the same tenderness, the same power and spirit of saying to our Heavenly Father, Daddy, Daddy. One of my greatest joys as a parent was when my kids were young and I would come home and they would cry out, Daddy, Daddy, and they come running to you with their arms open wide. I'm telling you, I was never too busy. I was never too preoccupied to open, drop what I had and sweep them off their feet and hold them close to myself. They wouldn't like it if I did that now. But I'm telling you, this is the picture of our Heavenly Father. And we're never too old to call Him Daddy. We're never too old to call Him Father, Appa, Papa, Daddy. Here's my struggle. Here's my challenge. Here's my struggle. Such an intimate connection with the Father is entered into through faith in the Son in the redemptive work of Christ, but it's experienced through the presence of the Spirit of God within us. Christ's activity secures our place in God's family. It secures our position as sons, and it secures our possibility of experiencing that sonship in, in marvelous ways that we can only tap into. And so then he goes on, therefore, verse seven, verse 7, Galatians chapter 4, therefore, okay, In view of our redemption, in view of our reception into it, in view of our position as his children, now what? You are no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We're we're completely, fully grown up, all privileges, all rights as his children, okay? 
That's who we are. And what does it mean for us? We're, we're not slaves to work salvation. You are not a slave to doing everything, uh, having every T crossed and every I dotted as far as the legalistic expectations of somebody in order to gain favor with God. You don't have to show up to church every time the doors are open. You don't have to do anything in order to earn favor with God. There are a lot of things that we should do. But we are not, not slaves working our way into inclusion in God's family, not working our way into adoption into God's family. No, we are sons of God through faith in Christ, and He has accepted us. Plus nothing, faith plus nothing is what we have. And so, how stupid would it be for us to backpedal and start working to earn our way into favor with God? Do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Now, the fact that we are his children, that his sons, by heir, full adults with the privileges, means that we're no longer slaves to works as a means of inclusion or adoption of family, but also means we're no longer slaves serving in fear, but we're sons and daughters obeying in love. So, I, I come to church because I want to Fellowship. I don't want to forsake the assembling of the se- ourselves together. I come to church so I can serve in the body of Christ out of my love for my Father. The love of Christ constrains me. I'm not doing it because I'm fearing God that He's going to punish me. I'm doing it because I fear God in reverence and awe and love for Him. Not a slave, but a son or a daughter of God. We're not slaves under a master, but we're sons under a loving Father. We cry, Abba, Father. And lastly... Maybe it's not the only one, but it's the last one I have on my page. Uh, the, the marvelous, wonderful thing, <laughs> that, that mind-blowing consequence is that, and these are the consequences of this sonship, is that we are no, not being a slaves. We're no longer slaves who are in poverty. But we are sons and daughters who will receive the full riches of Christ himself. I'm, this is what the text says. Verse 7. And if a son, then an heir through God. Everything the son possesses, we possess. If a son, then an heir. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 uh, says that we are heirs with him. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Nobody should be worried about, oh, somebody else is getting more than me. You know, that's how it happens in families. Like, well, I don't know, you know, we're going to cut things every, divide it all out the right way and this inheritance thing. I'm worried about that, you know. But I've seen it. I've seen people, you know, fighting over and wondering about who's going to get what. Hey, we're joint heirs with Christ. Join heirs with Christ. All that God has done for us in Christ is the real Christmas story. A possibility of transformation through encountering God, not some ghost that kind of changes our behavior temporarily. And so I wonder this morning, if you're listening here in person or online, what about you? Have you been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? You know, if not, you're a slave. I mean, we're all slaves, slaves of God or slaves of of Satan. But you're a slave of a listless and lifeless existence of just trying to go through the motions in order to gain favor with God or else you don't care. Or we're either a son of God, life-giving relationship that means we have a relationship with God that lasts for eternity. 
Christmas is about Christ coming to earth to give life as a sacrifice for sin so that all who believe may enter into a relationship with him. All who are in relationship with him may escape the punishment that comes from being outside a relationship with him. All who are in relationship with him can enjoy what it means to be fully in relationship with him because of the Spirit of God that dwells within us. I don't know about you, but this Christmas is never a better time uh, to be in a relationship with God. And if you're not, I trust that you will turn from your sin and trust in Christ as your Savior. And if you're here and you know Christ as your Savior, if you're listening online and you know Christ as your Savior, then how should we respond to this? But when the fullness of time came, first of all, we should celebrate being purchased. That's what redemption is, purchased out of the slave market of sin and into the family of God. We sang it because I requested it in the first service. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed and forever His child I am. Wow. Uh, Celebrate that. I should cultivate the, the intimate relationship that I have with my Heavenly Father through the powerful work of the Spirit within me. I should contemplate the marvelous inheritance that I have to an inheritance that Peter says that's incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, that's reserved in heaven for you. (laughs) Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance. And then all that I just said, so I flipped it, okay? And then finally... Uh, maybe we should take time to communicate this great news with the people around us, that they too can be members of God's family, received, received into the family of God and adopted with full rights of sonship. And we, we see that the, the, the cradle led to the cross, And as we close, we see that the cradle was just like a a stopping off point. It's a marker on the pathway of God's redemptive work that leads to the cross, which is what we remember when we celebrate communion, the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the juice, reminding us of Christ's body broken and his blood shed so that we could be redeemed and we could be his children. And so as you take the next few moments, I just ask you to think about this. If you don't know Christ, if you trust in Christ as your Savior, then you will be brought into the family of God. If you know Christ, then maybe we should spend a few moments praising God in our hearts to celebrate. Maybe we should take a few moments to say, Lord, I want that deeper love with you and that intimacy with you. We should think about contemplating the inheritance we have and then Praying and asking God to help us communicate, especially at Christmas time. I'm going to pray for the bread and the cup, ask you to take it at your leisure. If you're here and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're invited to participate. And uh, the praise team will come and lead us in a couple of closing songs. Father, I thank you that when the fullness of time came, that you sent forth your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those of us who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons, that you would send forth your spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, that we too 
might know what it is to have a closer, intimate relationship with you, our Heavenly Father. And now as we contemplate all you've done by taking the bread and the cup, transform us, Father, by your Spirit's power through our encounter with you. That is truly the real Christmas carol. In Jesus' name.